Now, I reckon this is a passage um, that is a bit surprising, a bit uncomfortable. I've been a bit kind of thrown by the passage this week, uh, as I'll explain to you. So let's pray and let's ask God to help us. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you for giving us your word, the Bible. We pray tonight that as we look at this passage, which is um, perhaps a bit strange to our ears, that you'll help us to see through it and understand what uh, is going on here so that we can understand it and put it into practice in our lives. And uh, Father, we pray that by your spirit you would help us tonight uh, to be not just hearers of your word but doers. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the worst thing that could happen to you? Just think about it for a minute. So see if you can get an idea in your head. Uh, what is the worst possible thing that could happen to you? Your worst nightmare. Uh, is it uh, your parents dying? Maybe. Is it uh, your husband or wife dying? Maybe it's the death of uh, your child or your, your grandchildren. Your worst nightmare would it be to lose your own health. Maybe, maybe get so sick that you're at the point where you can't look after yourself anymore. Other people have to take you to the toilet and do all that kind of stuff for you. Is that your worst nightmare? To just be completely dependent on, on other people? Maybe Alzheimer's disease, something like that. What's the worst that could happen? Mental illness? marriage breakdown what about to lose everything you have bushfire comes through everything you've worked for gone or um, say persecution starts someone decides they're going to kill all the Christians and you have to drop everything and escape not on a boat to Australia but on a boat from Australia everybody you've got to get out lose everything leave everything behind and go to a strange country be put into their detention centres or something like that there's lots of terrible stuff that can happen in this world. And I've got some bad news for you. It does happen. Not only does it happen, it has happened. Did you know that every single thing I just mentioned has happened to people in our church? Every single thing. In my time here, People have had their parents die. People have had husbands or wives die, even after decades and decades of marriage. Just last year, Frank Alidzi died. 60 years of marriage, nearly. And then he died. His wife left on her own. Uh, I've done three funerals for children of families in our congregation in the last 10 years. Their children have died. We've seen people get older and sicker and have to go into higher care. You see it especially in the lodge here. They desperately want to stay in self-care, but they get to a point, Alzheimer's or whatever, they can't care for themselves anymore and have to be at the mercy of one of these nursing homes. I have buried dozens of people who came to church here. They were all dead, I can assure you. <laughs> but uh, dozens of people in my time here have died and I've done funerals for them. There are people here whose marriage has broken down. There are people here who've been struck down by mental illness. Uh, we even have people among us who came to Australia as refugees. At least uh, two sets of people, people sitting here tonight, who came 
on boats, escaping from religious persecution to a strange country with nothing, with nothing. Think of your, your worst, worst nightmare, the, the thing that you least want to happen in the whole world. It could happen and it has happened to people here. So are you prepared? How will you cope? How will you cope? How will you cope when tough times come? How will you react? How will you deal with the trials of life? What, what will happen if your worst nightmare happens? What will happen to you as a person? Will you become a, a bitter, twisted sort of a person? What will happen to how you feel about God? Will you be angry with God, like God hasn't given you what he owes you or something like that? Will you be surprised? What will it do to your faith if your worst nightmare happens? Do you think you'll hold on? We need to be prepared. All right, well, let's have a look at this book of James. Now, the first thing to notice about the book of James is it's not a book at all. Um, it is a letter. It's a letter. It's written by the man called James, hence the book of James. Uh, most commentators believe that this is the James who was the brother of Jesus, probably a son born later on to Joseph and Mary. I heard the theory for the first time in my life during the week uh, that He's the son of an earlier marriage of Joseph and therefore an older brother of Jesus. I don't think I buy it. I think I'm still with what I've always believed, that this is a, a, a son to Joseph and Mary later on. But notice in verse 1, James doesn't describe himself as a brother of Jesus. No, no, he describes himself as a slave of Jesus, a slave of God and of Jesus. And notice what James calls his brother, not the sort of thing that my brother has ever called me, sadly. Uh, James calls Jesus Lord and Christ, meaning the king that God has promised. James chapter 1 and verse 1. Have a look with me. James chapter 1 and verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, bit of historical background. If this is Jesus' brother, we know that he didn't actually believe in Jesus when Jesus was alive. Uh, John chapter 7 verse 5 says that even Jesus' own brothers didn't believe in him. But we also know from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that after Jesus died and rose again from the dead, he appeared to James, his brother. Now, as you can imagine, James changed his mind about the whole not believing in Jesus thing. He was convinced, uh, convinced that Jesus is Lord and Christ, convinced that he should live not as Jesus' brother, but as his servant, as his slave, literally. And James went on to do exactly that for the next 30 years. He, he devoted his whole life to serving Jesus, to telling other people what Jesus had done until around about 62 AD when he was murdered for his faith in Jesus, martyred for being a Christian. This letter is written by James. And it is written to some people that he calls, can you see it there, the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Do you see that? 12 scattered tribes. What's that referring to, do you think? 12 tribes that's talking about Israel, isn't it? Israel are the 12 tribes, the 12 sons of Jacob. And James is using the word of Christians. I think at the time he was dealing with all Jewish people anyway. I'll show you that in a second. Um, but it's referring back to Israel's history. And here he's referring to Christians. And it's Christians who've been scattered, scattered away from their hometown of Jerusalem. Now, the best guess that Bible scholars make on this is that it refers to the early Christians who were persecuted at the time that Stephen was killed. 
So it's what Kate just read for us. So we're dealing with very early stuff here. A couple of years after Jesus died and rose again, there's this persecution that comes in association with Stephen and all the Christians, apart from the apostles, are scattered, it says, amongst Judea and Samaria. And then chapter 11, it says they head off to places like um, Cyrene and Antioch. So we're very early on. People, uh, people think this letter was written maybe in the 40s, perhaps the earliest letter, um, in, in the New, perhaps the earliest letter in the whole of the New Testament. And so you've got a whole heap of Christian Jews. They've been scattered. So back to the second half of verse 1, James is writing to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. And he gives them his greetings. Okay, now if we've got the context right here, you can imagine these Christians are doing it pretty tough. They might have had things pretty good in Jerusalem. A nice business or practice set up. Their house, their holiday house, their, their, their families, all sorted out, all set up in Jerusalem. But now, because they're Christians, they've had to drop everything and run, run for their lives. Because of their faith in Jesus, they've been thrown out of their homeland. They've lost everything. Refugees in a foreign country, as it says, scattered among the nations. And so it's no wonder that James starts off by addressing the tough times that they're facing, the, the, the trials and tribulations that they've had. But you look at what James says, and you know, I reckon it is, it's, it's, it's shocking. It's surprising. He doesn't say, oh, I feel so sorry for you. He doesn't say, it's really tough that you've lost everything. I, f I feel bad for you. No, no. Instead, he says, you guys, you ought to be thrilled about all these terrible things that's happened to, that have happened to you. He says, you should be joyful about it. Have a look in verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Uh, that's weird, don't you reckon? There is something a bit strange about that. That almost sounds cruel to my ears. Does it sound it to your ears? Here are these people, like, if we've got the context right, they are really suffering. And he says, smile, be happy, be joyful. Why? How could he say that? Well, he gives his reason. He says, James says, why, the, why these Christians should be joyful about the tough times they're facing. He says, he says, it's good for you. It's good for your Christian faith. It's testing your faith. It's teaching you perseverance. And it can or it should lead you to Christian maturity. Back to verse 2. Have a look. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. These Christians are doing it tough. James says, that's fine. It's good because it will help you to grow as Christians. And he goes on to say, if you can't see that, if you can't work out how that could be, what you need to do is pray about it. You need to ask God to give you the wisdom you need to understand, to understand how your trials can lead you to Christian maturity. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, that is, if you're not complete and mature and lacking in nothing, if you lack wisdom and you don't understand how your trials can grow you as a Christian, if you lack wisdom, he should ask God. 
They don't know how their trials could grow them as Christians. If they lack that wisdom, they should ask God, and God, James says, will show them. He will show them. He'll give them that wisdom because that is what he wants for his people. He wants us to grow up, to be mature in our faith. Verse 5 again. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. God will give the wisdom we need to understand how our tough times can grow us in Christ, the wisdom that we need to, to find joy in them. Uh, but James says, if you're going to pray for that, if you're going to pray for wisdom in your tough times, well, you've got to want what you're praying for. That's a song, I think, isn't it? You, you better be careful what you pray for, you just might get it. Well, you've you got to actually want what you pray. You've got to believe that what you really want is Christian maturity, that you really want is the wisdom not to be out of the trial, but to grow as a Christian in the trial. You've got to believe and not doubt. Verse 6, but when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Now, I don't think this means you can't have any doubts when you pray. We all have our doubts when we pray, don't we? But can you see the sort of person that James is talking about there? A double-minded man, isn't he? If he wants to be a Christian or not. He's like paper tossed around in the wind. We can't be the kind of people who don't even know if we want to be Christians, who don't even know if we want to have Christian maturity. People like that, they might pray for the wisdom that grows them to Christian maturity, the wisdom that enables them to rejoice in tough times, but that's not really what they want. You're double-minded, unstable, you don't know if you want to be a Christian or not, then what you want is just to be out of your trials. Now, sometimes, um, sometimes I wrestle with my children and uh, we'll, be, we'll be rolling around on the trampoline or whatever and I'm tickling them or something like that. Now, from what my, from what my kids say, you would swear that I am torturing them. Uh, Stop! They scream. Dada, get off me! You're hurting me! You're killing me! I'm dying! And as I callously ignore their pleas, my wife will finally get fed up and put an end to it. Stop it! She'll say, get off them, Jeff. Get off them. Leave them alone. So I stop, I get off them, and what's the next thing they say? Do it again! Do it again! <laughs> they ask me to stop, but they don't mean it. Or I don't believe they mean it. <laughs> they don't want what they're asking for. James says we need to want what we're asking for. We need to believe what we're praying for. We need to want the wisdom to be mature Christians. The wisdom that sees how we can grow in our trials. The sort of wisdom that does enable us to rejoice in the tough times. You're going to ask for that. You've got to want it. Okay, do you get what James is saying? He's writing to these Christians who are doing it tough. They've been scattered through the nations. Refugees because of religious persecution. And he's saying it's okay. All this can grow you in your faith in Jesus. And so you can rejoice. Even when you lose everything. You can find joy. And if you're finding that hard, if you're finding it hard to do, ask God to show you. Ask him to give you the wisdom you need to see how your trials can grow you as a Christian. Now, it's reasonably simple, isn't it? What he's saying is fairly simple. Uh, maybe fairly simple, but as I said before, this passage sounds pretty weird to our modern ears. The idea of 
considering tough times pure joy, that sounds like some kind of a joke. In fact, it's a long-standing joke of mine. If something really bad is happening and someone asks me, I go, oh, it's pure joy. It's, uh, and I say in the James 1 sense, it's, it's something, something I've always said as a joke. I kind of I think it's sarcastic or ironic. Or I can't imagine it's some kind of masochistic craziness that you would consider pure joy your trials and your tough times. It doesn't make any sense to us. And so before we think about applying this passage to ourselves, I want to point out two things, two things that have that have really struck me during the week, two important things that we've got to get clear if this passage is even going to make any sense to us. The first point is this. You can see it on your outline. Point number one. Christians grow through tough times. Christians grow through tough times. You can see this proved over and over again through church history. You can see it proved over and over again in our world today. Christians who are doing it tough, they grow strong in their faith. Christians who have it all stay weak and flabby in their faith. As I've thought about it, I reckon it partly comes down to what James says here in verse 2. Trials test your faith. Do you see that? The testing of your faith. They make you think it through carefully. As you face trials for being a Christian, as you make sacrifices, as you suffer for being a Christian, it makes you ask the question, is this real or not? Am I a Christian or not? If it hurts to be a Christian, you start going, well, is it worth it? Is trusting Jesus worth this pain? Am I actually fair income going to stick with this? Trials test your faith. And as you put Jesus to the test, you find that he comes through. And so you grow in perseverance. You're strengthened. Your faith grows. And you see more and more that all the stuff that you thought you couldn't do without, all the stuff that you thought, oh, it would be so terrible if that happened, it's not that big a deal. It's just gone in a second. What really matters is what Jesus gives us. Trials strengthen Christians. But if everything is going great for you, if you're facing no trials, if you're making no sacrifices, if you're just the same as everyone else out there, it doesn't matter if Jesus is real or not. It doesn't make any difference if Jesus is, if Jesus is real or not. It's like, um, if he is, great, I've got him for an insurance policy, but if he isn't, oh well, nothing lost. I've got everything I need anyway. Nothing's been given up. I'm the same as everybody else. I'm not missing out. No big deal. It's a recipe for what Jesus calls being, and I don't think Warren got us to this letter in uh, Revelation chapter 3, but maybe next January. It's a recipe for what Jesus calls being lukewarm. Lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. It's a recipe for weak, half-hearted Christianity, the sort of Christianity that we see all around us in Australia. Have you ever wondered why the gospel is spreading so rapidly in nations like China and India and, and African nations, and it is such hard going here. This is part of the answer. This is part of the reason. It is because people over there do it tough as Christians. They face trials and it makes them grow up. It makes them stand up and be counted. They're going to be a Christian. They're going to count the cost and they're going to be fair income, full-on Christians who will stand up and stand out for Jesus. You see it overseas. You can also see it here, though, as well. You can see it in our congregation. You can see it among us. For many of those 
who have really suffered in our congregation, it has grown you in faith. I look at some of the people who really suffered last year, Aileen, Lindsay, her husband of decades died, the Hartshorns, their little baby died. As I've seen the way that they have faced their trials with faith and with joy, and as I've seen how it has grown them in Christ to be the kind of mature, calm, centered, godly, faith-filled people, I gotta say it's really encouraged me. Christians do grow through trials. It's been proved here time and time again. That's point number one. Point number two is this. Our second point, uh, and this is something that really clobbered me around about Tuesday as I was thinking this passage doesn't make any sense and then suddenly this struck me on about Tuesday. What James assumes here is that our first priority is Christian maturity. We read what James says here about considering trials to be pure joy. It sounds stupid. Uh, the idea that pain could be joyful, crazy, uh, joyful pain. It's an oxymoron. You know, two opposite words together, like civil engineer or something like that. Uh, complete oxy Joyful pain. All right? For us, joy is lack of pain. Uh, joy is comfort. Joy is sitting in front of the TV with a bar of chocolate. Uh, joy is sleeping in a comfortable bed. For us, joy is the opposite of pain. And the idea of joyful pain makes no sense. But can you see that reveals something about us? About our priorities? About our desire for life? For us, the priority is to be comfortable. For us, the priority is to have a life as free from pain and trouble as possible. And that's why what James says makes no sense. That's why the idea of considering hard times and pain as pure joy sounds like a joke. But what if our priority was different? What if instead of wanting comfort as number one priority, we wanted Christian maturity as number one priority? What if our, our dream and our desire was not to be like our neighbours and have all their stuff? What if our dream and our desire was, would be to more, be more like Jesus and be like him? What if our deepest desire was to be mature and complete and lacking in nothing? Well, you put that together with point number one, the fact that Christian growth happens through trials, and can you see suddenly this passage is starting to make sense? It's actually ringing true. It's not a joke. It's not sarcastic. It doesn't sound so weird anymore. If what we really want is Christian maturity, and if Christian maturity comes through trials, well, then we can find joy in trials. Do you get the point? What James says here reveals a different set of priorities from ours. That's why it sounds so weird. All right, that brings us to application. So you can see from the outline there are two points of application. Uh, and it's just the, the two things that James tells us to do in this passage. Very simple. Uh, first, to consider our trials to be pure joy. And second, to pray for wisdom about it. Consider and pray. Okay, so point number one, application point number one, consider it pure joy when you face trials. How are we going to do that, you reckon? How are we going to do that? How are we going to consider our trials pure joy? Well, let's go back to the beginning, uh, to that question that I asked you. Um, you remember I asked you, what is the worst thing that could happen to you? What is your worst nightmare? 
Did you get something in your head? Did you think, kind of picture, this, is, this for me would be the worst nightmare? Well, that question, it can reveal the thing that is most dear to your heart. It can reveal your number one priority. So, for example, if you said, my worst nightmare is the death of my spouse. Okay, well, your marriage and your spouse is number one priority. Uh, what if you thought, uh, uh, the, the worst thing that could possibly happen to me is the death of my child? That reveals your child is number one priority. Uh, did you say losing my health? Did you say losing my stuff? You revealed your number one priority. Did you say my, my worst nightmare would be having to be looked after by someone else? Then your priority is self-determination. Do you see how it works? Listen to this. If we're going to find joy in our trials, we need to change our nightmare. We need to change our mind on what the worst thing is that could happen to us. Do you get what I'm saying? We've got to be able to get ourselves to the point where we can say, the worst thing that could possibly happen to me is that I don't grow to Christian maturity. The worst thing that could possibly happen to me is that I never make it to heaven and to the time when I will be complete and mature and lacking in nothing. We've got to change what we dread most. Now, if we do that, we'll be in line with reality. We'll be in line with what Jesus says. Jesus says, don't you fear those who can kill the body, but after that can do nothing. Fear him who can kill both body and soul in hell. Jesus said, what, what does it gain? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Jesus tells us your worst nightmare is to miss out on him. Your worst nightmare is to not be the greater maturity in him. Missing out on salvation, missing out on Jesus. That is, in fact, the worst thing that could happen to us. But we've got to get that clear in our heads. Or to put it the other way around, as, as I was saying before, our first priority needs to be holding on to Jesus and growing up in him. That, in reality, is the most important thing. It's God's first priority for us. We've got to get it clear in our own heads. If we can get that, then, if, if we can start to work towards the point where Christian maturity becomes our great desire, and if we realise that that Christian maturity comes through trials, then I think we are on the way. We're on the way to being able to apply this passage to ourselves. We're on the way to being able to consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds. So your worst nightmare happens and you say, God, God, please give me wisdom. Help me to keep trusting you. Help me to know that you are good. Help me to know that you're in control. And show me how this can grow me in Christ. As I say, some of you have experienced that and shown it to be true. We've seen it among us in this last year. As people have faced their worst nightmare and have come through, stronger and better for it as Christians. Now, I just need to clarify a couple of things. This is not to say that trials are good in themselves. It is not good when people get sick. It is not good when people die. It's not good when Christians face persecution. It's not good when relationships break down. These things are not good in themselves. And we shouldn't be praying for these things to happen. Uh, nowhere in the New Testament are we encouraged to pray for trials. You never pray, God hit me or something like that. You should never pray that for yourself. You should never pray it for anyone else either. God hit him, something like that. You should never pray that kind of thing. Trials are not good in themselves. We shouldn't want them. But we trust that God is in control. 
trust that he uses our trials to make us more like Jesus. And if that is what we want, to be more like Jesus, then we ought to be able to find joy in our trials. Consider it pure joy. That's our first application. Second application, just briefly, is this. Application number two. We should pray for wisdom in trials. When we face tough times, we should ask God to show us how we can grow as a Christian through it. I don't know about you, but before this week, that is not something I prayed for, for myself or for other people. If someone is sick, I've always prayed for their healing, and that's fine and it's biblical, and James will tell us to do it in James chapter 5. But here is something else to pray for. Pray when someone is sick or suffering. Pray that God will give them the wisdom to know how their trial can grow them in Christian maturity. Have you, have you ever prayed that for anyone else or for yourself? I can't say that I've ever heard it from, from, from a, a prayer here in church. Maybe that I just didn't have ears to hear. You prayed it, but I wasn't on board with you in terms of James 1. But I don't think I've ever prayed it, and I'm not sure that I've ever heard anyone else pray it either. But you know, the beauty of that prayer, the beauty of that prayer is you know God will do it. Now, certainly if you pray it for yourself with faith... You've got God's promise here. There in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, and it will be given to him. That's a promise from God. And I reckon it makes very good sense to ask for something when you've already got a promise that you'll get it if you ask for it. Do you know what I mean? It makes very good sense to ask for something when you know the answer is yes. I pray lots of prayers, and I don't know what the answer is. God, give me a Lamborghini. I haven't prayed that one recently. Maybe a Ferrari. I don't know if the answer is, is yes, no, or, or maybe. But here, if I pray for this, I know the answer is yes, because God's promised it. Makes very good sense to pray for it, don't you think? Okay. I have to say that this passage has rocked my world a little bit. As I looked at it and thought this is just ridiculous or sarcastic or something like that on Monday... But then as I thought through how it works, it's really shown me how, how wrong my priorities are. And it's so vital that we get this right, that we are prepared for this. Because as we said at the beginning, bad stuff does happen, bad stuff has happened, and we need to be prepared. We need to be prepared if we're going to face our trials with joy. We need this wisdom that James is talking about. So can I encourage you, pray for us. Pray that God will help us to desire Christian maturity, pray that we will so desire Christian maturity that we can more than just hold on in tough times, we can actually rejoice in tough times. Why don't we pray for that right now? Let's pray. Almighty God, our loving Heavenly Father, we praise you because you are completely sovereign, completely in control of all things that happen in our lives, both good and bad. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are a God who desires our maturity. You want us to be complete and mature and lacking nothing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, so I guess in that we thank you for trials. We thank you for tough times. We thank you that through them you test our faith and you give us perseverance and you grow us in maturity. We pray, Heavenly Father, for ourselves and for the people around us that you will give us the wisdom to know how to grow Christian maturity in our trials. We pray, Father, that we would desire Christian maturity above all else. Our Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.